Maybe you've heard of Slack, but what is it? Slack is your new HQ. One place for everyone at your company to find answers, share updates, and stay caught up. Slack, where work happens. Get started at slack.com. My mission is simple, to make you money. I'm here to level the playing field for all investors. There's always a bull market somewhere, and I promise to help you find it. Mad Money starts now. I'm Kramer. Welcome to Mad Money. Welcome to Kramerica. Other people want to make friends. I'm just trying to make you some money. My job is not just to entertain, but to educate and teach you. So call me at 1-800-743-CBC or tweet me at Jim Kramer. Now, we know the market roared today. That was easy. Because the Senate just passed another $500 billion bailout. Well, uh, bailout, let's say, of the last bailout. As it quickly ran out of money. That's why the Dow surged 457 points. Ah. S&P soared 2.29%. The Nasdaq pulled one at 2.81%. House of pleasure. The payroll protection program was supposed to be for small business, right? But in the end, a ton of, uh, of that money ended up going to big businesses, public companies. I was a backer of this thing. And, of course, now I feel like a chump. I guess I should be more cynical about politics, just trying to help small business. However, if you ask me, that wasn't really the big story of what's going on. See, there's something bubbling underneath right now, under the surface. And if anything, it makes me want to be less cynical about corporate America. That's right, corporate America. See, this market's rewarding businesses that have foresight and originality and, most importantly, heart. Now, I don't want to sound too sappy, but I don't know how else to put it. The stocks of good corporate citizens are thriving here. Mark Benioff, the CEO of Salesforce, loves to push the idea that business is the greatest platform for social change. He's a proselytizer, and he's right. Like it or not, business has the firepower and the smarts to make things happen. Benioff's not alone, which is why tonight I want to focus on real business people doing really great things that should ultimately help you make money as a shareholder. I used to scoff at the idea of doing well by doing good. I did. Seem foolish, idealistic, a bad way to make money. Remember, in the end, I am supposed to be a dollar sign represented by a man. But we live in a new world now. A world where doing the right thing may actually be good for business. Why don't we start with Kramer fave Chipotle, which just reported a 35% decline in same-store sales. It saw its stock surge 12% today. No, no, bear with me. It's, it, it, it's not counterintuitive. See, in the B.C. era uh, uh, before coronavirus, evaluating stocks is straightforward. We plot the sales and earnings against the estimates and do the same thing with the forecast, not anymore. You know, look, you got to be a total knucklehead to offer a forecast in this environment. If the CDC can't reliably predict when this pandemic, where it's headed, when it's headed, it would be pure hubris for Chipotle to make the attempt. So without that guidance, we have to look at other things, like the stuff Chipotle's put right at the top of its earnings release. And I'm going to quote, at Chipotle, investing in our people has always been the top priority. After all, they are our greatest asset. They go on, well, before COVID-19, we had industry-leading benefits for all employees that include free meals, paid sick leave, crew bonuses, debt-free degrees, as well as mental health concierge for all employees and their families, end quote. Chipotle paid millions in bonuses to reward workers. For why? For showing up during the COVID era. Why? Because it's part of their DNA. 
And you know what else is part of their DNA? Food safety. When I listened to this conference call, I found myself thinking that Chipotle's kind of like Taiwan, South Korea, the two countries that handled this outbreak almost perfectly thanks to their experience with SARS years before. So many restaurants, if they're even opening, are scrambling to become more sanitary because becoming a coronavirus hotspot would be real bad for business. Chipotle's so ahead of the curve here because they had some unfortunate food safety issues a couple of years ago that forced them to change all their protocols. If you have to go out to eat right now, I can't think of a safer place on earth than Chipotle. But why go in person when you can get ditch ties? You can get delivery. Ever since Brian Nickel took over as CEO in 2018, he's rolled out all sorts of different ways to get people food. For example, they've got Chipotle's drive throughs where it takes just 12 seconds to get your burritos. They've got a terrific nationwide delivery partnership with Uber Eats. Put it all together, Chipotle was perfectly positioned for the stay-at-home economy. Yeah, they, they even used the term, I love it, they said, uh, people who are stir-crazy, yes, yeah, stir-crazy at home eating the same, people like Chipotle. And that's why the digital sales more than doubled March, up 103% year over year. Digital now accounts for nearly 38% of the business, which is why it's more important than the fact that they had that 30% decline in the same store. That's amazing. Even better, Chipotle's not pulling its horns. They're actually taking this opportunity to expand. They can do that. They got the best balance sheet in the business courtesy of Jack Hartung, their fabulous CFO. Many of the real estate investment trusts that control strip malls weren't too crazy about the Chipotle build-out, but now they're the most desired tenant around at a time when the REITs are desperate for business. Put it all together, and I think they got a winning formula, and that's why I keep pounding the table in the stock. I've been adamant that it can go to $1,000, even though I got raked over the coals for being cockeyed optimist every time I say it. Last night, the stock was trading at 786 bucks. Now it's at 882 and change up 95 smackers within striking distance of its pre-COVID highs. I've been beating this one since it was about 300 when we went 18 months after the last bit of bad news. Now listen to me. I can't stress this enough. Chipotle spent the last couple of years doing everything in its power to win back your trust. And in this period of fear and uncertainty, you know what? That was the strategy to make big money for you as a shareholder. Not the only winners. Snap, the parent of Snapchat's become the preferred way for bored young people to enjoy themselves between or maybe during Zoom classes. And that's why that stock jumped 36 percent today. Hey, glad I went positive on Snap a few months ago. Although I, I think CEO Evan Spiegel, I think he's still mad at me for being so critical when the social media company was was struggling. I don't know. I can be tough sometimes. Whatever. Or how about Texas Instruments? Up nearly 5% after a reassuring conference call. Really reassuring. Where management just told us to break it out the 2008 financial crisis playbook and they're confident things will be fine. I I, I, I said, like, geez, I, this was like pre-COVID. That ignited a host of semiconductor stocks, including Intel, AMD, NVIDIA, Qualcomm, and Skyworks Solutions. The group may stay hot tomorrow. Why? Robust number just this very evening from chip equipment maker Lamb Research. But nothing was more spectacular then the numbers from a stock that actually didn't go up today, but that's okay, Netflix. Just like Chipotle, Netflix kicked things off by noting that they're giving $150 million to support of out-of-work content producers. Second, they agreed to reduce their bandwidth consumption at the request of countries that are struggling to meet broadband capacity in this new stay-at-home world. Can you imagine having to reduce or suppress the demand? What kind of product has that? Finally, they snared more than 15 million new subscribers, nearly double what Wall Street was looking for. Although management immediately clarified that this growth rate is unsustainable. That's them. That's that self-facing stuff they always do. I say not so fast. I'm betting this pandemic will have a long-lasting impact on people's behavior. Like Chipotle or Amazon, Netflix offers a superior product at a superior price. And I suspect the worldwide qu- uh, quarantine will be fabulous for word of mouth. 
Fabulous. Look at it like this. The company does this cool interview as their that's what they do for their conference call, where they force all their executives to name their favorite Netflix shows. And one's coming up. I was furiously scrambling down the name so I could I could stay cool with my kids for next Sunday's boozy brunch, you know, my Zoom brunch. You know what it was? It was unorthodox. All right. Calm was unorthodox. The show's unorthodox. They made me. They, they made a ton of content ahead of time, ahead of uh, the coronavirus. Maybe that's just luck. Maybe it's brilliant preparation. I don't know. Either way, I think the stock is more upside, and it's nuts that it ended up pulling back today. But it had run hard into the cliche print. What else? On Monday and Tuesday, I told you not to sweat the oil meltdown because it was a financial fakeout. Sure, the oil stocks are horrible. Industry's in big trouble. But crude only went to sub-zero levels because of weird distortion in the futures market. Sure enough, oil came roaring back today. And while it's still bad, whoa, it's not destroy what's left of the economy bad. And the stocks finally are getting a little rally. You can exit again, bottom line. In a very tough environment, companies with ingenious leadership with a heart are doing well by doing good. Turns out rewarding your employees and protecting your customers, good for business. Just look at Chipotle and Netflix, both of which have more upside here uh, uh, because they understand that business is the greatest platform for social change. Ted in Virginia. Ted. Happy Earth Day, Jim. Longtime listener, first-time caller. All like right. To Good to have to you. My brother Todd, who's a big fan of the show. Oh, wow. All right. So, so I currently hold a small position in Union Pacific Railroad, and after ringing the bell back in November, I still show 100% gain on the shares. I'm interested in your thoughts. Uh, UMP reports tomorrow. I'm interested as a long-term position. And what do you think about the railroad sector as a whole with well, the uh, current COVID issue? CSX uh, reported a number that people like. Union Pacific, I think, is every bit as well run as CSX. Here's the way I would handle you in Union Pacific. I actually am tempted, even if it's not that great, I'll go back and forth with Stephanie Link on this group, I'd be a buyer. Why? Because I believe in the future, and Union Pacific is the future. Ryan, in my daughter's old home state of Oregon, Ryan. A big Rip City booyah, Dr. Kramer. Oh, done your way, partner. What's going on? Hey, thanks for taking my call, and thanks for all of your advice during these trying times. Thank you. I'm a young investor, and I'm looking to get some exposure to the financial sector while the market is still down. All I right. was wondering if you'd recommend uh, buying one of the uh, credit card companies, looking at a more traditional big bank, or should I pass on those and look somewhere else entirely? No, I'm going to offer two options. I think you should either do MasterCard, which is incredibly well-run, and that is owned by my travel trust, or you can do PayPal, which is also incredibly well-run, but that stock is up so much, I don't know. Maybe you have to wait for that one to come down a little bit. Um, Why don't we get to Victor in California? Victor! How you doing, Jim? It's not a bad day, Victor. I skipped my lunch, though, and I'm hungry. What's up? Just pointing that out. Oh, yeah. Um, yeah, I want to talk on, on Expedia. I've been buying this week uh, at 40 and 50. Uh, they went up to 60 uh, in a matter of a day. Right. And I want to see if it's, if it's still a play. Uh, you know, they got a you know good-looking balance sheet. I'm sure they got lower overhead than a lot of these actual hospitality leisure businesses. And they own they own all these websites that dominate right. the, the industry. Right. I'm not a big like, travel leisure fan, but I am a huge Barry Diller fan. So I'm willing to let Barry Diller override my uh, what I would regard as my more skeptical judgment about travel and leisure. So I'm okay with Expedia, especially with that new kind of recap they're doing. And there we go. Companies that are doing good 
are doing well. Companies like Chipotle and Netflix, and I think they've got more upside. Uh, oh, man, money tonight. As working from home becomes the new normal, how are the data centers handling the demand? I'm going to talk to the CEO of Digital Really. How hot has that been? Find out how it's positioning itself in the new world. Plus, we keep hearing about Macy's and JCPenney's and Kohl's and others who are in trouble. I'm going to reveal why. But first, there's a major structural shift happening in the bond market, and you can make a lot of money off it. Don't miss my sit-down with market access. So stay with Kramer. Don't miss a second of Mad Money. Follow at Jim Kramer on Twitter. Have a question? Tweet Kramer. Hashtag Mad Tweets. Send Jim an email to madmoney at cnbc.com or give us a call at 1-800-743-CNBC. Miss something? Head to madmoney.cnbc.com. This CNBC podcast is brought to you by TD Ameritrade. In unprecedented times, access to the right information can help you make better informed investing decisions. That's why TD Ameritrade is committed to providing a range of relevant educational content, like timely articles, informative webcasts, and access to daily live market news, so you can stay on the path to becoming a smarter investor. Learn more at tdameritrade.com slash market hub. TD Ameritrade, where smart investors get smarter. We're always searching for companies that directly benefit from the current crisis. The ones you circle around, you know, circle the wagons around them. Because you know what? The market's going to get hammered again, and you need something that you know is doing well right here. Tonight, I've got another one for you. It's a longtime Kramer fave. It's called Market Access Holdings. It's an electronic bond trading platform. Now, for years, Market Access has been fighting to digitize the stodgy bond market. I've been a fan since we had them on, geez, I don't know, two and a half years ago. Since then, the stock's more than double with a huge chunk of that move coming over the past month. Why? Because Market Access makes its money on volume. And with the credit markets whipsawing back and forth, trading volumes have been off the charts. A 50% year-over-year in March. That's how the stock spiked to a new all-time high last week before pulling back slightly. And it's not just volatility. It's also lockdown orders. The pandemic has forced tons of old school bond traders to get on board with electronic trading. And I've got to believe they'll stick with this platform even when the quarantine's over because it's so much more convenient. Don't take it from me. Let's dig deeper with Rick McFay. the chairman and CEO of Market Access Holdings. He knows a ton about this business. He had a better sense of how his company's thriving in this environment. Mr. McVay, welcome back to Mad Money. Hello, Jim. It's nice to be with you again. Well, Rick, every time I see you, it gets better and better when I bump into you on the street or you come on the show. But these numbers show to me that maybe you're kind of like the Netflix of bonds, that people discovered it. It's better than what they were doing the other way, and they won't they can't live without it. There are some similarities. Uh, There's a new way to trade bonds that happens to be much more efficient. Uh, creates more trading opportunities and reduces transaction costs. So uh, we've, we've had a great run and we're not happy about the reasons why, given the, the events of the pandemic and the hardship that it's created around the world. Uh, but it has benefited our business as the value that we deliver to our clients is greater than ever uh, in this kind of environment. Well, talk to me about this total credit trading average daily volume of $12.2 billion? I mean, and total trading volume of 269.5. These numbers are outstanding. 
They're big numbers, and uh, March was an incredible month uh, because when you think about it, we started March with all asset managers and dealers operating off their main trading floors. We ended the month with everybody working from home. Uh, so our teams just did a great job keeping everyone connected to the market, helping them get set up at home, getting all the security certificates done properly so that they could continue to trade with their clients through an extremely volatile period in, in March. And uh, we did have record numbers. Uh, the order flow on the platform spiked over 20 billion a day. The completed orders, as you mentioned, about 12 and a half billion per day. Not only were market volumes a lot higher in March, but our share increased through the month as there was a premium on secondary liquidity and clients came to market access to find the liquidity that they needed. Rick, do you think people will go back? I remember the first time you were on. And I'm used to, I was just using picking up the phone and doing these trades, trying to get the best offers. And I couldn't believe that 30 years later they were still doing it until you. Do you think that there are people who have found market access, recognized that they were mistaken to continue with the old way and are never going to go back? We see uh, significant client behavior uh, moving toward a much more favorable view of uh, electronic trading. And, you know, once uh, traders really do see, uh, begin to change their trading habits, uh, they realize that electronically they can conduct more trades with their client per day. They can operate more efficiently. They can be in the middle of more trading opportunities. And once they experience that, they really don't go back. And uh, we did have during the month of March a new record in terms of the number of client firms that traded on market access, as well as the number of individual traders, it really shows the sea change taking place in terms of people embracing electronic trading for a much bigger percentage of their credit trading volume. Many people felt that because of the disruption from COVID, that the bond market would be in disarray. I heard it over and over and over again. I have to tell you, and not just from me, when I read through the Goldman Sachs conference call, for instance, they found it much more orderly than it had been before. How much of that could have been market access? Well, I think we played a role in the functioning of the market uh, through these extremely volatile times. And I look back, Jim, and you'll appreciate this going back to your early days trading high yield. But we looked at the move in high yield from February 24th to mid-March. And high yield spreads move from 400 basis points over treasuries or the spread that mm -hmm. investors demand for the credit risk in high yield over treasury securities to 1,200 over in three weeks. Ooh. When we look back at the last great crisis in 2008, that same move in high yield took 11 months. So these were extreme, extreme conditions. The other thing we observed in 2008 is that market volumes went down during the event in this event, market volumes have gone up and electronic market share has gone up. I think that speaks to the benefit of what we do to keep the entire global credit market connected on the market access platform. Okay, so, Rick, tell me, uh, we hear the Fed saying, you know what, we're going to expand. We're going to start buying high yield. We're going to buy municipals. Does that mean that can you see them bid? Do they use someone? How can you tell if the, if the Federal Reserve is in there doing buying? Well, uh, we don't have any particular uh, insight on exactly how they uh, will implement the program, but uh, our belief is that uh, they will utilize the, the trading experience and straight through processing and risk management of BlackRock. Uh, I think that's why they hired BlackRock as their advisor. It made perfect sense to us 
so that they can leverage that tremendous infrastructure uh, of BlackRock to implement the program. So uh, we'll, we'll see, but I would expect that that's, uh, that's the way the Fed will operate in credit markets. Well, I got to tell you, I got to hand it to you. You told me it could go this way. I was thinking that they're hidebound, that they're just never going to change. And you got it right. And I know, like you said, you don't want it to be because of COVID. But boy, this is the best way to trade. Rick McVeigh, Chairman CEO of Market Access Holdings and a visionary, sir. Great work. Thank you, Jim. Great to be with you. Thank you. He told me it was going to happen. Frankly, I was skeptical because I know that industry, but I didn't know it as well as he did. Man, money's back in. Right. This CNBC podcast is brought to you by TD Ameritrade. Investing isn't one size fits all. Every investor has a unique style. That's why TD Ameritrade offers two different mobile apps. There's TD Ameritrade Mobile, which lets you manage your portfolio with streamlined simplicity. Or Thinkorswim Mobile, which gives you tools you need for more advanced trades and in-depth analysis. Visit tdameritrade.com apps to find the one that's right for you. Once again, that's tdameritrade.com apps. It's not just the department store that's dying, it's the whole mall. We keep hearing that Macy's and Neiman Marcus and Kohl's and Nordstrom are in trouble. Well, no kidding. Every one of these department stores is, frankly, a disaster area. They've been struggling for ages, though. But like so many other long-term trends, the pandemic threw fuel on the fire. Neiman was dumb enough to borrow $6 billion in order to take itself private in 2013. These leveraged buyouts have been the kiss of death for so many retailers, and now they're about to file for bankruptcy. Macy's is trying to borrow $5 billion to save itself. Bond salespeople are incredible. Normally, they can wind down anyone into buying almost anything. But the proper store bonds during a pandemic, that might be a stretch. Although they pulled it off with another chain that's now too small for me to mention on TV. That said, I think you'd have to be crazy to buy department store bonds unless you're confident Macy's can get its hands on some federal bailout money. I ought to know. I sold a ton of, ma- of bonds for the old Macy's when I worked at Goldman Sachs. And that version went bankrupt a few years later. Kohl's just borrowed $1.5 billion so it can stay closed, but they had to suspend their dividend, which was one of the few things that the stock had going for it. The issue here, why bother to open it all? We've lived without Kohl's just fine. We just didn't even need them to return our stuff to Amazon. You can get pretty much everything you need online anyway, uh, usually for less money. Nike, direct to consumer. What's a, that's a great way to get it. Kohl's cash? Monopoly money? Nordstrom's problems were a bit more surprising. It's a high-end chain with excellent service. Then again, the late Bruce Nordstrom told me that as great as his customer service was, Amazon's better. Who might I argue with him? Ask yourself, do any of these chains have a raison d'etre? You know, like SART? Not any more than the old indispensable department stores like Litz, where my mom labored selling women's lingerie, or Gimbel's, where my dad was fired for selling gabardine trousers. Those are all obvious dinosaurs. The problem here is that the quarantine crushes the good operators and the bad operators alike. We knew we didn't need the department stores, but now the pandemic's making us realize that maybe we didn't need anything in the world at all. This morning, we learned that Sycamore, the leverage bile king, is trying to get out of its deal to buy Victoria's Secret. Makes sense. You can't try on bras when the mall's closed. Anyway, wouldn't it be better to try them on at home? Just guessing. It caused the Paranel brands to get trashed, down 15%. VF Corp and Tapestry both sold big number cuts today. PVH noted the same thing when CEO Manny Chirico on the show came on not that long ago. He's a real good operator. The mall is filled with stuff we don't need. 
I, I remember when the Cherry Hill Mall first opened. It was one of the first ones, an indoor palace, a paradise that generated tremendous excitement. My grandparents lived across the street from it in October 1961. Oh, I was there. Store after store, one after another, Shopper's Paradise. It was unique, stunning. Then they put up hundreds of malls like Cherry Hill, which ultimately killed the golden goose of uniqueness. Malls became homogenized, mediocre commodities. Oh, sure, they tried to go more experiential. I love the mixed-use concept embraced by Federal Realty. I think that can work in a normal environment. But I read a note last night about EPR Properties, formerly one of my favorite reads, saying that it collected only 15% of April's rents. Hmm. The experiential economy shambles. Movie theaters account for 45% of the deadbeats because it's hard to pay rent when you're not allowed to do business. Again, movie theaters were on their way out anyway, though, right? Too expensive, too limited, too noisy. Candy's so expensive. Better to watch a movie of your choice via Netflix on big screen at home. Other malls try to save themselves by leasing to experiential office like gyms. But nobody wants to go to a shared gym during a pandemic, although the Georgia governor thinks it might be a good idea. The general consensus is that they're major coronaviruses incubators franchises even. Pet stores maybe had a shot until Chewy came along with some much-needed online competition. Only two kinds of retailers are working here, the ones that have enormous scale and sell essentials, or the ones with fabulous digital businesses. That means Costco, Walmart, and Amazon. I think Home Depot and Lowe's make it, and Target, too. But that might be it. Aside from the off-price stores that can buy all the excess inventory created by this retail crash, no matter how hard they try, all of Treasury's horses and all of Congress's men couldn't put the Humpty Dumpty of retail together again. I know there are tens of millions of jobs on the line. The pandemic's real financial casualties, but perhaps, alas, it was just a matter of time anyway. How about Doug in Texas? Doug! Thanks, Jim. Appreciate you what you do for all the little guys out here. Uh, you're welcome. You do a great job. Thank you. I've watched you. I've watched you since 1998. Wow! And I remember your I remember your stories about living out of your car. And I think I picked uh, Citrix Citrix up in 1998, living out of my car, trying to be a stockbroker. Well, boy, what I do tell you, you the think truth, about you, it now? you picked up something good. Now they're about to report, but I've got to tell you. The February 20, April 23rd. Why do I know? Because that's my mom's birthday. Uh, and Citrix, I think, is doing is an a- absolutely fabulous stay-at-home trade. If it comes down, I'd buy it anyway. Let's go to Emily. And thank you for the kind words. And live in your car, you save a lot of rent. Emily in Washington. Emily. Oh, Booyah, Jen. Thank you for taking my call. Of course. Um, I love your show and read your books. Oh, thank um, you. My question is General Dynamics. Um, their stock was doing pretty good, and then it took a big dive in March and slowly starting to rise. And my question is, how do you see them poised as a technology company, and do you think they have the ability to innovate in aerospace and yes, military? Yes, I really defense? like them. I like the military side. I like the yield with 3.3. And get this, I like the private jet side. Why? Because everyone's so afraid to fly public. And I keep saying, listen, if you can make it so that they got the ultraviolet and you clean it up and the stuff with the mass and the temperature and stuff, I'm a flyer, but people think I'm a crazy man. I need to go to Vaidi, Vaidi in Washington State, where they got down first and clamped COVID. Vaidi. Hey, Jim, a big Seattle booyah to you. How are you doing today? I love Seattle. I love it there. <laughs> All the smart companies you know, are there. About, you ever notice? We're about to flatten the curve here. So uh, I know because you got a great governor and you got great soon. people. What's up? All right. So I wanted to get your opinion on Brookfield Property Partners, which is a limited partnership, and and you know, and the, just the sector in general. BPY, I, I like them because you know they have some iconic retail and office assets. Also, the pandemic offers some some real opportunities to scoop up high quality assets at bargain yes. basement prices. 
But then there's also the downside of the big leverage, which is, which is further exacerbated by the fact that rent from tenants might dry up. Even I know. To have a strong liquidity. It's so run very, very, it's really run by a very, very smart group of people. I mean, really smart. Um, and I want to say that they can, they, they can pull this out. They are very smart people. It's not my cup of tea because I don't like real estate here other than the, the beach house that my wife bought. But uh, I understand the rationale. All right. The mall is simply full of stuff we don't need. Only retailers with enormous scale and essentials or, of course, off-price and great direct-to-consumer are going to really prosper here. Hey, much more made money ahead, including my exclusive with a company up more than 20% over the last month. Which company is thriving amid volatility? I'll reveal the name when I sit down with the CEO. It's a little surprising. And I'm chatting with a man who's seen six financial recessions over his career in finance. Why does this one look a little different? And all your calls rapid fire tonight's edition of the Lightning Round. So stay with Kramer. A couple weeks ago, I recommended a bunch of specialist real estate investment trusts, especially the data center REITs. With millions of people working from home, you need more data center space to support all the cloud-based software they're running. And that's why these names have been such consistent winners during the lockdown and certainly separating themselves from the rest of the REITs, which are often losers now. Take Digital Realty. It's one of the largest data REITs in the the world. It's bound for 3% yield. They own and operate huge server farms, both here and abroad, especially with last month acquisition of InterExxon, and that is a major European data center firm. Digital Realty was the fourth best performing stock in the S&P 500 during the first quarter, up 16%, while the averages got poleaxed and hasn't slowed down. up 7% since I, I, I pushed it just three weeks ago. Uh, can this stock keep climbing? Let's take a close look with Bill Stein. He's the CEO of Digital Realty. Get a clear idea of how his company's doing and where it's headed. Mr. Stein, welcome back to Mad Money. Thank you, Jim. Good to be here. Well, Bill, I've got to tell you, you've been spot on and everything. I want to start on a bright spot. Uh, too many people are negative. Today is Earth Day, and you did announced a project, a, giga- a gigantic one, and I want you to talk about it because I think it's going to make everybody realize how far we've come in this world. Be happy to, Jim. So you're right. Today is Earth Day, but sustainability is, is one of our top priorities every day of the year. We're focused on sustainability because it matters to our customers and because we think it's the right thing to do. Today, we announced a new energy agreement to supply clean, renewable wind power for our data centers in Dallas. We've more than doubled our renewable energy sourcing over the past two years, and last year, our renewable energy efforts avoided 500,000 metric tons of carbon emissions, which is equivalent to taking over 100,000 cars off the road each year. We've been recognized for our leadership in the, in the industry. We were named the EPA Energy Star Partner of the Year just recently. NARI has named us the Leader in the Light Award each of the last three years in the data center category. And in 2019, we achieved an industry-leading 29 Energy Star and Green Building certifications. In sum, we are absolutely committed to delivering sustainable growth for our customers, our shareholders, and our employees. All right, so when I see in your new logo section of the February 13 financial results, 250 new logos for social media applications, I have to believe that those companies are saying to you, hey, Bill, you know what, we're going to go with you, but we want to see renewables. We do not want fossil. You're right. You're absolutely right. It's a... In some ways, it's table stakes today. It didn't used to be, but it is today. 
Well, I've got to tell you, when I see these things, what it tells me is also people say, well, Jim, why is oil down so much? Well, there are, why are fossil fuels down? Why is natural gas down so much? Because people like Bill Stein are listening to their clients and they're saying, you know what? We can gain business if we run a cleaner operation. Again, you're, you're spot on. Right, We're aligned with our customers. All right, so let's talk about the uh, the worldwide growth. You go to you just announced your third data center in Singapore. You're moving aggressively in Europe. You're going to hyperscale. Why those markets? I would think that the United States is the strongest market. The United States is an extremely strong market. Uh, we've had tra- tremendous growth over the last well, really since the last time I was on this show. Uh, I was on this show in 2016, Jim. At that time, our uh, Market cap was uh, just a little bit over $15 billion, and today it's $40 billion. Our enterprise value was $25 billion. Now it's $55 billion. So we've invested around the world since that time. Uh, we, we acquired the public company DuPont Fabros in September 17. We announced a joint venture with Ascenti, a sharing that investment with Brookfield in, for Brazil and, and then Chile. And most recently, we acquired Interaction, the large European uh, co-location player. But we think the opportunities uh, are, we basically, Jim, we think that it's important to serve our customers around the world. Uh, we have a global platform. We have a soup to nuts uh, product offering from small cage cabinet to hyperscale. We're the only company that does that. And we think that uh, having these offerings around the world is absolutely critical for our customer base. So, Bill, I. Earlier uh, last night, I read through the Netflix conference call. Netflix actually had to suppress a lot of its business because the people were running out of uh, the whole countries were running out of bandwidth. I've also been focused on people who have been working from home. Now, working from home must use, use a huge part of data center that had never been used before. How much more work to, uh, goes into a data center? How much more business is there because of stay at home work? Uh, we, we've definitely seen an increase in, uh, in data center demand during this crisis. Uh, you know, most of us, you said it, are you, you and me right now, in fact, we're, we're working from home. Right. So the, the video conferencing, social networking platforms, all of them are our customers, and we've seen an in, uptick in their band, bandwidth requirements. And the businesses are under pressure to accelerate their digital transformation. It's not just uh, consumer to consumer. And post-crisis, we expect that this that IT departments will continue to beef up their infrastructure to support a fully remote workforce. In fact, I don't know whether you saw this, but uh, in a recent Gardner survey, 74% of CFOs said they intend to shift some of their employees to remote work permanently. That's incredible. The whole cut. The world is changing right now. One last question. Again, I'm focused on hope tonight. I don't know. I just feel like it. AI-powered tech for pathology research in in one of your handouts. Does that mean that maybe the data centers are helping uh, scientists to try to come up with uh, at least a vaccine for for COVID uh, 2019? Uh, We absolutely are. I mean, and and one thing that, that we are doing is we announced that we're waiving fees for uh, certain verticals for six months, connectivity fees, and those include uh, medical emergency services, educational, and government. So we're, we're doing our part. We're, we're trying to, to give back. In addition, we've given a million dollars of charitable contributions to various organizations around the world to uh, source a, a vaccine. Well, let's hope we beat this thing. And uh, Bill Stein, what a remarkable institution you have. Uh, Bill is CEO of Digital Really DLR. Remember we said the REITs that you want to be in 
are in data center. And that is it. Mad Money's back after the break. It is time. It's time for the and then the lightning rounds of Are You Ready? Ski Dance of the Lightning Rounds. We're with David in New York. David. Hey, Jim. Thanks for taking my call. I know you're a big fan of Netflix. What do you think about Roku? Do you think it's a fan? I think Roku's good. I think Roku, uh, yeah, it's got that cord cutting feel that I like. So I'm going to say, okay, let's go to Brian in Florida. Brian. Jim Booyah. How you doing, man? I am doing well, thank you. Doing good, 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 good. Listen, man, I've been a long-time listener to your show. Love your advice, man. It's been going on for about 13 years. and listened since I was 11. All but right. look, man, I believe, I believe I'm believe. i a young investor. I'm long-term. I believe in every portfolio you have to have a cornerstone. My thing is the insurance industry. Haven't heard a lot about it. However, a long-term player in this industry, brown and brown. Brown and brown. Do you really trust the stock whose symbol is bro? Um, i got to ask my buddy, uh, Robbie Bradle. He's Mr. Reinsurance. But when it comes to the insurance business, you know I'm a chub guy. Look no further than Evan Greenberg. I love that interview, by the way, last week. It almost got postponed. I would have just been, been, been hopping mad. Let's go with Sheila in New York. Sheila. Uh, hi, Jim. Sheila, hi, what's happening? I'm locked down in Westchester. There you go. What's going on? Uh, well, uh, looking forward all day to mad money and... Then to squawk on the street in the morning. Holy cow, you and me both. We come yeah, in fired yeah. up every day. Um, I know you pulled us through last time, so we're going to do it again. We'll do it again. Maybe nap this time, though. Uh, yeah, it's hard. <laughs> so, it is. This job's yeah. gotten impossible. I mean, I'm it doesn't go home. i got to make my own dinner. What is that about? <laughs> go ahead. Um, well, um, what do you think about t Well Price? I actually like the company very much. Uh, this industry has been uh, completely trashy. You had a 3.5% yield. People are going to save again. They've got very good management. Let's say yes to T. Rowe. Uh, you think I'm finished? I'm just getting started because I'm going to Dave. Dave in Florida. Dave. Hey, Jim. Booyah. My very first booyah. First booyah. Okay. <laughs> Hey, Jim, I was looking at um, MRVL for a long-term play and for a spec short-term play unit. Can you give me any info? You know, that is a really intriguing company, and we're going to have to do a little homework because it's not just a regular REIT. It is actually one that's involved with wireless. That Oh, I got a goodbye email from John Ledger. See T-Mobile at 90? I miss that guy. Maybe I make him my co-host for Fridays. So I got to do more work on unity. I can do more work. Let's go to Dinesh. We've had Dinesh before. Dinesh in New Jersey. Dinesh. Booyah, Jim. This is Dinesh from New Jersey. It's a caucus. Yes. I, I, I need advice on United Airlines. Uh, yeah, the deal didn't help. They did the print. They offered all the stock, and they didn't offer it deep enough in the hole. They screwed up the deal. Um, but you know what? I'm a big believer that that one's going to come back. Uh, we're going to fly again. We really are. My friend Jim Stewart said it. So we're going to fly again. And um, I do feel like United will be okay. And that, ladies and gentlemen, conclusion of the Lightning Round. The Lightning Round is sponsored by TD Ameritrade. (laughs) 
I'm all about accountability. And the other day I screwed up. When I heard the distressing news that Fogo de Chao, one of my favorite places, Brazilian steakhouse, had taken funds from the cash-strapped payroll protection program, I got angry. Fogo de Chao is run by a private equity firm. This was supposed to be a small business bailout. But I blame the wrong private equity firm. I thought Thomas H. Lee Partners still owned this chain. But the truth is, they sold it years ago. Now it belongs to a totally different outfit. Thomas H. Lee owns a bunch of companies, but they haven't taken a penny from the payroll protection program. However, there's a silver lining here. When Thomas H. Lee's gracious co-president Scott Sperling reached out to ask for a correction. We got to talking about the pandemic. He gave us the perfect chance to invite him on the show. In addition to running a private equity firm with a lot of automation and software businesses, he's also the chairman of Mass General Brigham Health System. Hey, that's the parent of some of the most important hospitals in Boston. So he's got a unique perspective here. He, he has always been a friend of CNBC. Mr. Sperling, welcome to Mad Money. Thank you, Jim, and thank you for uh, graciously pointing out um, the, our non-ownership uh, at Fogo. It was a great deal for us where we tripled the size of it, but uh, we haven't owned it for a number of years, as you point out. And uh, we're very mindful of the situation that we're in today. We've um, worked very hard across our portfolio to make sure that we have a high level of self-sufficiency. Um, and as you uh, have also graciously pointed out, have not taken uh, triple P money. Well, Scott, let me ask you, you do have a huge portfolio. Uh, Let's say uh, these companies were all based in Georgia, okay? And Georgia's got a reopening plan. How many of them do you think you would reopen? And how many of them are open now? And how many of them would you say, is the governor out of his mind? (laughs) Well, I'm not going to make the political, any political comment. Uh, There are a lot smarter people uh, than me, like you. But uh, we, we're, we're, we're very careful about this. Uh, as we entered this period, um, we were able to deploy our very large team of operating experts across our portfolio to position each company for what we thought could be a six to 12 month period of uncertainty uh, and of challenges on the revenue side, make sure that every company was sufficiently liquid to uh, take uh, care of themselves on, um, uh, let's call it a reasonably worst-case basis. Um, as we enter a period where we believe that there will be an opportunity to reopen more fully, you know, we want to be equally careful. And okay. so our team has prepared a document that has a hundred different items to it, a checklist effectively to ensure the safety of our employees across the entirety of our portfolio and to make sure our companies are very mindful uh, of both the challenges, but also some opportunities that may exist for particularly for very specific portfolio companies. Well, let me ask you, as chairman of uh, one of the most important healthcare systems in the world, is it your perspective that the media is too negative, the president might be too positive? I'm not trying trying to be political here, but I am leading to this. There are a lot of people, including people that I've talked to at your institution, who think that a vaccine could be closer than I realize, because I think it's three years out. Where are you in terms of the ultimate kill of COVID-19? <laughs> so I, I think the uh, more immediate, um, the more immediate breakthroughs will be in the therapeutic side. 
Okay. I think a vaccine, uh, according to our folks, is probably at least a year away in terms of being uh, fully deployable. Uh, we have teams of researchers that are involved in almost every one of the major efforts on the vaccine side, and so I think we are optimistic that there will be one. But to be realistic, we have to assume that that's a 12 to 18-month time frame, hopefully not three years. But in the meantime, I think we're making breakthroughs in a couple of areas. The first is a number of the therapeutics that we are major test centers for are showing very positive results, and we're learning how to best use those therapeutics. Uh, and the therapeutics would be both antivirals, but also IL-6 inhibitors, which deal with the inflammation that seems to be the cause of some of the most um, uh, high acute uh, uh, case complexities. So we're really learning a lot about that. We're also making uh, breakthroughs in terms of what the protocols are for patients. I think we've all been a bit disappointed in the experience with ventilators. I know there was a story in Bloomberg talking about a 90% um, uh, mortality rate for people going on ventilators in New York City, not quite as bad in Massachusetts. And if you're at a place like the Mass General or the Brigham, uh, it's actually closer to 50%, so much better results, but still not where we want it to be. And what we're learning is that there are many things that we can do uh, before we get to that point that has had a very positive impact on patient outcomes. The other thing that we know is that most of the uh, fatalities are, are uh, of people who are um, elderly or with uh, significant comorbidities of one of five different types. The elder, so the elderly population is what's really driving much of the death rates, the average age of uh, people in Italy that we saw was 79.6 years right. old. It's not much different in terms of what we're seeing, at least at our own institutions. Um, so well, it really is uh, focused from a from a mortality perspective on uh, mostly an elderly population. Right, well, Scott, you did say something. I, I know we can't be anecdotal. We have to be empirical. We have to have control. But when you talk about the IL-6, when you talk about some of the things that we're seeing, the antibodies, uh, that does make me uh, uh, optimistic. I don't want to get too optimistic. We had something like that happen last week in Chicago. But is it your perspective that the test that you see going on without revealing anything, the test you see going on would make us feel better as a people who are so fearful right now once we get to the hospital? I, I believe so. I think that, you know, there have been early reports out on uh, a a number of different antivirals, let me just say that. And I think what we're seeing is um, reasonably good results, and we're learning how to best utilize those antivirals at what point and for whom. Um, so I, I do think we're making very good progress. You know, look, th- this is a – they call it novel for a reason. Nobody's had it. Right. We're all susceptible to it. It spreads like wildfire because of that, and um, the uh, the only um, the only positive is the virulence for most people is not high. Uh, it 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 leaves many people uh, with um, mild to asymptomatic uh, condition, and uh, I think our healthcare system is getting much better at dealing with the people who actually need hospitalization. We've done a really good job. In Massachusetts, um, Charlie Baker, our governor, Marty Walsh, the mayor of Boston, many other politicians have worked hand-in-hand with our healthcare system, and we've made sure that we have the appropriate capacity to deal with the high-acuity cases that may pop up so that we don't have situations where people are waiting in hallways for life-saving help. 
Well, look, Scott, I want to thank you for your graciousness. Thank you for all the things you're doing to try to help save save lives and for running a fantastic firm. Scott, Spur- Scott Sperling well, is the co-president. Thank you, sir. Pri- a private equity firm, Thomas H. Lee, and the chairman of Mass General Brigham. Good to talk to you, sir, as always. Thanks so much, Jim. Take care. Yep. Good deed, doer. I like it. Sick and Kramer. Here's something that's not supposed to happen. We've actually had good earnings tonight. Lamb Research, Capital Equipment Company, Semi, you know we like it, but it was blowout. I mean, the numbers, Kimberly was blowout. I, I've got to tell you, take a look at IBM, those who sold it at 116. It's all the way back. So before you guys decide it's all over, the numbers are good. Like I said, it's always boring with something. I promise I'm just here right here. I'm Jim Cramer. I'll see you tomorrow. Marcus and Jim, I'll host my Scott Wadman begins now. CNBC's Workforce Executive Council is a premier group of C-suite human resources executives from leading companies across the country. It offers a members-only portal and chat, plus exclusive industry content, with access to breaking news calls and digital networking experiences. The network and resources HR leaders need now. Apply to the Workforce Executive Council at cnbccouncils.com slash WEC.